You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. So today we're going to do a question and answer. I announced that on Facebook this last week. Uh, so I hope you brought some questions. It just Lanny writes Lanny writes them down waiting for this, and we only get to do it about once a year. So um, so I'm grateful for the opportunity to do it today. And I'm going to begin with a word of prayer. So if you have your questions, kind of get them in your mind, and I'll give you a brief introduction after we pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for the blessing of being able to be here, the freedom that we enjoy to to gather openly like this, and it is a freedom that is not enjoyed by so many of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we give you thanks that you have, have given us that freedom and that ability and then provided safe travel for us. It is because of what Christ has done that we, as your people, are called here, and we gather together and dedicate this day to you. We thank you that we can do that. And we ask that in all of our discussion and the question and answer, that you would be glorified and uh, give us ready minds to know the truth, and ready hearts to obey the truth. We pray that through this time you would be honored as uh, you teach us in your word. That is our desire, and we pray for your blessing upon our time here and our worship service, which is to follow in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so a uh, brief introduction to Q&A. Uh, this is not stump the pastor because that's an easy thing to do. It is a question and answer. So if you have a question that you wonder about, a theological question or a question about ministry or a question about the Christian life or a question from the Bible, now is your chance to ask that question, and I'll do my best if, if I can to answer it. And, uh, okay, so, yes, Robert. Yes, I will try and repeat the question for the sake of those who are here who may not be able to hear a question asked up front or in the back, and also for the sake of anybody who might be listening to the recording. Okay, Questions? We got one in the back. So, Justin. Okay, good question. Uh, the question is, um, what do we make of and how do we answer, what do we make of the false writings, the pseudepigrapha, the false writings, which are uh, writings written around the time of the New Testament writings, uh, most of them very early after the New Testament writings. What do we make of those writings? Uh, what is our perspective on those writings, I guess? And then how do we answer people who want to give as much credibility to the Gospel of Thomas as they do to the Gospel of John. Um, and Justin's asking this question, by the way, not because he doesn't know the answer, but he's kind of priming the pump this morning a little bit, because we were talking about this last night, and so that would be a good question to answer or ask. Uh, here's the answer to it. It, it. it is true that, as Justin said, every Easter you get the same old tripe drummed out on all of the networks about how Jesus was married and Jesus never really died on a cross, and the New Testament church was uh, very Gnostic and a bunch of mystics and all of that, and they get this from the false writings, apocryphal books, uh, and, and false writings of the New Testament. And when we say false writings, we mean that they were writings that were never accepted by the New Testament uh, Christians, by the early Christians. Um, and and they, they put a lot of credence into the Gospel of Thomas. There's a Gospel that bears Peter's name, the Acts of John. There's a couple different books called the Acts of, uh, the Gospel of Barnabas, Gospel, as mentioned, Thomas. It, and by the way, Thomas, I wish you wouldn't have written that because it cut, creates a lot of confusion. <clears throat> it is, yeah, I know you think it's really good. So what do we make of those writings? Um, 
you'll hear people talk about the lost books of the Bible or the lost gospels. That is that is a huge assumption. Do you do you understand what assumption is being made even by calling it the lost book of the Bible or a lost book of the Bible? The assumption being made is that the, that nobody knew of these books and then suddenly we just stumbled across in some Alexandrian library the text of the Gospel of Thomas. And that is not the history of those books. The, the history of those books is quite different. We have known, Christians have known about these writings from the time that they were written. We've known about them for centuries. And those writings were never accepted by the Christian church. They never embraced those false writings because they never viewed them as authoritative or apostolic. And the people who, who had them at the time uh, and, and knew of them at the time did not embrace them because of the errors contained in the text. So these are not books that were accepted by all Christians and then sort of fell away somewhere, and then all of a sudden we've discovered it, and now we need to reinterpret the entire New Testament in light of this lost gospel. That's that's not the story of them at all. Christians for years knew of those texts, and they rejected them. They never considered them as canonical. And by canonical, we mean as authoritative or part of the canon, the rule, the, the collection of books that we recognize as inspired. Um, and we're going to get to how, how I would answer that uh, th- that in a, in a witnessing exchange in just a second. But one thing that you need to keep in mind about canonicity, and that is what determines whether a book is inspired or not, one thing that we always need to remember is that canonicity is not something that the church defined. It is something that the church discovered. Whether a book was belonged in the Bible or w- was to be regarded as authoritative was not something that the early church defined. It's something they discovered. In other words, revelation is an objective an objective delivery of God to His people. So God Himself has determined what is inspired. It was up to the New Testament Christians and the people who surrounded the lifetime of the apostles to discover what those books were. And we have not missed any of them. Uh, we recognize books as authoritative not because we say, well, this really spoke to my heart, and so this is going to be the Bible to me. No, we recognize a book as authoritative because we recognize that it comes from God, it's the Word of God, it had authority. It was written by an apostle or one closely associated with apostle. And it and it communicated the truth as delivered by Jesus and the apostles. That was the test. And so if a, if a writing was embraced by uh, and widely accepted by Christians, it was because of those features. And those other pseudepigraphal writings or books written much later that Christians never embraced as Scripture. These things were never regarded as the Word of God. And so they ought not to be regarded as the Word of God now because they don't meet, meet the test of canonicity. So how would I, any questions about that before I move on, by the way? Yeah, you can't call them lost books of the Bible because they, they were never included in the Bible. They were never included among among those things that were accepted as apostolic writings. Okay, so how would I how would I handle that in an in exchange with somebody? I would point out to somebody that I was talking in a witnessing exchange, I would point out you you are you are accepting the testimony of a the Gospel of Thomas over the Gospel of John. You are allowing your embrace of this book as more authoritative than the Gospel of John. So, for instance, what Justin was dealing with last night, cause he, or this last week, because he told me about this last night, this this lady says, why do you accept the Gospels when and reject all of these other books? And so she accepts all of these other books, and guess what she does? She rejects the Gospel. So my question back to her is, why do you reject certain books and embrace others? What is your standard? She's doing the exact same thing. People on that side of the aisle do the exact same thing that we are doing, but they have different standards. And what they really want to do is cast doubt, allow 
these these other writings to cast doubt on the actual Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I would point out, you're you're taking the testimony of somebody who didn't know John, you call it the Acts of John, you're taking, you're accepting as true the testimony of somebody who didn't know John, didn't write at the time of John, and and was and whose writing was rejected by those who did know John, and who were in the apostolic tradition, and you were embracing their testimony and allowing that to cloud and to overturn your confidence in the other things, which were eyewitness accounts. These gospels are eyewitness accounts. These are written by men who are eyewitnesses or closely associated with eyewitnesses, like Luke, for instance, who did the who did the research, the historical research, to make sure that what he was telling us was true. So does that kind of answer the question? I think you have to, somebody like that, ultimately, you got to get back to, they're not looking at all of the evidence and, and coming to a conclusion on it. They are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, and they are embracing these writings because they uh, align more with their preconceived notions and presuppositions. Uh, yeah, Pat. Yeah, if it's not of the truth, it is of the devil. Right. We have the, there were, there were writings at the time, remember there were writings, things written even during the lifetime of the apostles that were rejected by the apostles and by the early church. Um, Paul makes mention of, uh, Paul makes mention of, of something potentially written by him. Is it 2 Thessalonians or 1 Thessalonians? Uh, do not be disturbed uh, by uh, a vision or something as if a letter from us. There seemed to have been a letter written by the hand of somebody else that claimed Paul's authorship. And Paul mentions that and says, don't be disturbed by that. That That is to be rejected. Um, not everything written during that time period, and there were tons of things written during that time period, not everything written during that time period was inspired and intended to be part of the canon or inspired scripture. Uh, Christians had to had to pick and choose. I had a, I had an illustration that I used to give of this at one time. Um, I, I'm going to wing something, and I'm hoping that this is going to walk by the time I'm done with it. But uh, let's say that we let's say we had a bunch of uh, Elizabethan uh, uh, writings from England, um, plays, and sonnets and stuff, and we and we wanted to find out. Which one of these was written by Shakespeare? Which one of these is legitimate Shakespearean? And then we were going to put together a collection of Shakespeare's writings. So we come up with Macbeth and Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet and Much Ado About Nothing and all of those good things. And then we collect what we know to be the writings of William Shakespeare. And we say, this is the, this is Shakespeare's collection. And then somebody else comes along and says, well, hold on a second. What about the lost books of Shakespeare? What do you mean lost books of Shakespeare? Well, there are other poems written about the same time as Shakespeare. Those should be included in the collection too. And shouldn't we allow those poems and plays that were written about the same time as Shakespeare by other people, shouldn't we allow those in the collection as well? No, because those were not written by Shakespeare. We, we're interested in what the Shakespeare's collection is. And the same thing with the New Testament and the Old Testament. We're interested in what God's collection is. Just because another book is written at the same period of time by somebody else doesn't make it, doesn't give it authenticity to belong in that collection. There are thousands of things written at that time period of time that were not included by the early church as Scripture. Yeah, Justin. Okay, Second Thessalonians 2.2. Good. That's where that's at. Uh, remember, there are also things written by the Apostle Paul that were not inspired. And things written by the Apostle Paul that were not collected for us. Can you think of a couple of things? 
You think Paul ever wrote a grocery list or a list of things to get at the marketplace for his tents? Was it inspired? No, are those, if we found a legitimate grocery list of the Apostle Paul in some fragment, a fragment in Corinth, would we embrace that as inspired scripture today? Would you say oh, that's inspired because it came from Paul's hand? No, not everything that came from Paul was inspired. Not everything he wrote was inspired. God used Paul to write certain things that were inspired, but not everything that came from Paul's hand was inspired. There are things that Paul wrote that were not preserved for us. Can you think of a couple of examples of that? There were at least two other letters to the Corinthian church that are not in our New Testament. What we know as 1 Corinthians was actually the second letter that Paul wrote, and what we know as 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth letter that Paul wrote. So there are two other letters to a church that bore apostolic authority that have not been preserved by the Spirit of God for us. So if we were to find, here's another test question for you, if we were to find uh, one of those lost Corinthian epistles through some uh, archaeological excavation in the city of Corinth, buried under a stone somewhere, and it bore Paul's signature, was written in Koine Greek, uh, all of the indications from it after we tested it and looked at it and studied it were that this was what was written by the Apostle Paul. This was, the, say, the third letter that has been lost to time till now. Would we embrace that as Scripture? Lanny says no and yes. Would I consider that? That's a good question. Would we consider that something that God may have been holding off to reveal to us until later? Okay, so let, let me play devil's advocate to that for just a second. Would God withhold something from His people and His church that was necessary and profitable for 2,000 years? Only to reveal that today. He could. But do we not believe that in the Gospel and the New Testament is contained all things necessary for life and godliness? And by the way, that would, that would fail one of the marks of canonicity that the early church fathers looked at. There were certain, there were certain tests or indications of whether something was considered canonical. That is, it, it belonged in the writings, the scriptures. Number one was apostolic authorship, so it had to be written by an apostle or someone closely associated with an apostle. Okay, so there, you understand there are examples of things written in the New Testament that were not written by apostles. Um, Mark, Luke, um, probably Hebrews. I believe that was written by an apostle. So those are examples of things written in the New Testament by men that were not apostles. Uh, Jude is another one. James, the Lord's brother. But So apostolic authorship was one of them. Uh, second, a ring of authority. The early church had to recognize that there was authority there in that writing, that this had the, this had the declaration of the Word of God, or it, 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 this was a bit of a subjective test, but it had to come across as the Word of God, or have that apostolic authority to it, the authority that this is what God has said. Um, so apostolic authorship, authority. Okay, right, we're getting to it. I'm saving the best for last. You're jumping ahead of me here, okay. Uh, authenticity, we had to, we have to know that it is actually an authentic writing and that, uh, the doctrine is in keeping with all of the rest of the doctrine in the New Testament. And the, there's a fourth one, I forget what it is, but. Okay, that's actually my fifth one. So I don't know what the fourth one is. Once again, I'm getting, I'm saving the best for last. Okay, so the fifth one was, whatever the fourth one was, that's the lost mark of canonicity for right now. Whatever the fifth one was, this is the fifth one. It had to be widely accepted by Christians at the time. So even the books that had quote unquote doubts surrounding their authenticity, like Jude, uh, Hebrews, and Revelation, 
those were books. I mean, they didn't have back then, they didn't have an internet where you could just say, okay, this is scripture and everybody accepts it. These were books that were written and maybe for a hundred years, Christians on the other side of the Roman Empire didn't even know of their existence. Right? So these books might make their way to a group of Christians. Oh, wait, 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 we got all John's writings. We don't have this revelation thing. What is that? So they would be in doubt about that until they would hear that this was widely accepted by the rest of the church. Okay, then, then there's no doubt. That removes the doubt. So the fifth mark of canonicity was, was it accepted and recognized by Christians as Scripture from the time of its writing? And so even the books that had doubts surrounding their authenticity, the, they, they would, that question would be answered, whether it should be accepted as Scripture would be answered once they found out this is accepted by other Christians. This is not some Johnny-come-lately-to-the-party thing written yesterday. The Christians over in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, they accept this as Scripture and have used it since the time of its writing. Okay, so it had to be widely accepted by Christians and been used by the church for from the time of its writing all the way up until the present time. So that is where the lost book of Corinthians would fail that fifth test of canonicity. It has not been widely accepted by the church. It would have been lost, right. So it would not have been accepted by the church and used by the church for that period of time. God doesn't lose His Word, though. That's the. I know you're playing devil's advocate here, but God doesn't lose His Word. No, it wouldn't, because even if we use something for 50 or 100 years, doesn't mean that it's necessarily uh, Scripture, because that's not the only test. Um, and today, you could never get all Christians to agree on whether something is Scripture or not. You could never get that. You can't even get Christians to agree on mode of baptism or church polity. Uh, You'd never get them. You would never get if you got a lost book from the Corinthians. You would never get either the Roman Catholic or the Protestants to glom onto it. They would never accept it, and it has failed that test of being used by Christians and recognized as the Word of God since the very beginning. Even remember, even during Paul's lifetime, he called his own writings Scripture, and he expected his own writings to be used as Scripture, read in the churches publicly, his writings publicly, because they had apostolic authority. The apostles were not just writing things thinking, wow, one of these days this might really be really helpful to people. When the apostles wrote things, they knew that their writings would be regarded as Scripture from the moment they left, got done and signed their name. These bore apostolic authority, and the churches were expected to treat them as Scripture from the very beginning. Paul quotes Luke's writings and regards calls Luke's writings Scripture. And Peter calls Paul's writings Scripture. So these men wrote and they expected their works to be treated as Scripture from the very beginning, and they were, and they were widely accepted, widely used across the board by Christians. Anybody who had them, who knew they were written by an apostle and had that ring of authority and knew that they were recognized by Christians, they treated them as Scripture from the very beginning. No, but it, but but this, when I asked you, I, I set you up for the second question, I guess, by asking you the first question. The first question was, if we found one of Paul's grocery lists, would we regard it as Scripture? No, we wouldn't. So if we find a letter written to Corinth, would we regard it as Scripture? No, we wouldn't, for the very same reasons. Very same reasons. Uh, and, and it has not been preserved for us. So I, if in order for me to say, well, God is... What's that? Oh, he, he's saying that if, if it were intended by God to be regarded as Scripture and treated as Scripture, then God would have made sure from the beginning that it was preserved for us. And, and that's what I'm, that's what I'm arguing. Right. 
from the earliest of times, you get the collections of the of the New Testament or the early church fathers, and um, they write down the canonical books, books that they recognized as scripture, and and those books universally accept the 66 books as inspired, universally treated that way. These were the traditions handed down, which books are inspired and which are not, handed down to the early church from those who followed that in the footsteps of the apostles. And those books were regarded as Scripture and treated as Scripture, and the other ones were universally rejected, except by these quirky, Gnostic, false-teaching sects who lived out in the desert and were wacky and rejected apostolic teaching. Right, that's a, that's a better way of putting it. It's not new, right. It's not new. Uh, when those events begin to unfold in front of people's eyes, we will see how Scripture is fulfilled, how revelation is fulfilled. And it won't be a revelation in that sense, but it will be a, it will be a clarification as we watch history unfold the way God has said it's going to unfold. Um, yeah, let's, uh, Robert, did you have something real quick? Anything God communicates to us written or otherwise is to be qualified as Scripture. Uh, the the record of that speaking is scripture. Uh, I think I know where you're going. Before we jump off onto that rabbit trail, real quick, Pat had something and Justin had something. So, Pat, right? Yeah, Pat's point is that in in here is revealed all that we need for life and godliness. And to ask the question, what's missing from this, is to presume some fault in the revelation of God and in the activity of His preservation and preserving His Word. Uh, Justin, did you have something? Yeah, good point. Justin's point is that when you compare the, uh, these other writings, these pseudepigrapha, to the New Testament documents, the, the distinction, the difference between them is like night and day. To use this illustration like green eggs and ham compared to Macbeth. And they are really that different. You read something from the Gospel of Thomas and you just walk away shaking your head thinking, man, I just I don't even understand what was being said there. And uh, Cornell read a few of those in his introduction to the book of Colossians, some quotes from those Gnostic Gospels. Um, okay, so to Robert's point here, back to his question, is everything that God has said, uh, really the question that you're asking is, every, is everything that God has ever spoken or said contained in Scripture? That's not your question? Is that happening, did you just ask? Is it valid? Okay, I see what you're getting now. Uh, somebody claims that they heard a word from God or a still small voice or a nudging or a prompting. Is that Scripture? No, it's not Scripture. Do I think it's going on today? No, I don't think it's going on today. Uh, is it authoritative? I don't think it's authoritative. I don't, I don't know if I've shared this experience with you with publicly or not, but there was, there was a time in Bible school um, when I was laying on my cot between chapel and the next class. Cause I had a 20-minute time where I could get 15 minutes of nap time in there. And it was it was very profitable for me. kept me awake for the rest of the morning. And while I was laying on my cot, I heard, as if somebody were out in the hallway of my dorm, uh, yell out very clearly, as just as I was dozing off to sleep, I heard a voice that said, you, you are called because I have called you. And it was just as loud as it woke me up out of a sleep. And I thought I heard this voice. So I got up in my dorm room. I walked out. I looked out in the hallway. There was nobody else even on the top floor of the dorm. But it sounded as if somebody were sitting in my room. And that was the first thing I did. I woke up and kind of looked around my room to see if anybody was sitting there. And the first thing I thought of was, oh, this is a, a voice from God. Well, by that time, I had already began to, begun to reject that. So what do I make of that voice I heard? What do I do with that? You know what I do with that? I don't, I, don't, I don't make anything out of it at all, except for an illustration right now of that I could have made something out of it, but I didn't. 
And I'm, I'm not, and I never would. Do I think that God spoke to me? No, I don't. Not at all. Uh, this is where God speaks to me in His book. So uh, God is not giving us promptings and revelations and, and still small voices and and, uh, and and things like that, that that guide us and direct us and put impressions on our heart. He, he can do that. God directs the heart of men. I believe that He does that. Does He give revelation to people so that they hear His voice? No, I don't believe that He does that. I don't believe that He does that. If God were to speak through a modern-day prophet or give a revelation, it has to be just as authoritative as what's in this book. You can't have God speaking and it have and be less authoritative than what He has already said. And those who believe in modern-day revelations and uh, the Spirit speaking to me in a still small voice, what they want to have is God speaking to them personally, but it's not authoritative, not like Scripture. No, no, there's Scripture. And then there's little private messages that I get on the side. They have to be double-checked by Scripture to make sure that they're true. Why? Why do I have to test God's Word, what He's saying, against something that is infallibly true? You can't have God speaking less authoritatively at one moment than He does at another moment. Or you can't have God speaking error in one moment and not in another moment. God, what He says is always authoritative and true. It's always Scripture. It always has to be. Um, and it always has to be regarded as that authoritative and inerrant and infallible and it cannot err. So I, I don't make anything out of those experiences. I can't exegete experience. I'm not called to exegete experiences. I, I don't even feel the necessity to try and explain away experiences. Do I have things pop into my head that turn out to be really good ideas? I do. Do I have things pop into my head that turn out to be uh, uh, remembrances? And we're dealing with this in the sermon today. Things that I remember that are true? I do. That, that I believe to be the work of the Spirit of God. But that's illumination. That's discernment. That's conviction. Those are other, there are other terms that we use to describe those things. Not the term revelation and not the term the Spirit spoke to me. I don't know if the Spirit spoke to me or if it was the taco acting up and I just had this feeling that I had to act upon. And so I have to go do this. I, I, I cannot tell when the Spirit of God is directing me and when He's not. Sometimes people think that what's happening with the Spirit, this is the Spirit directing me and it turns out to be a disaster. And all the while, they're claiming that the Spirit is guiding them in this activity. And then it turns out to be a total train wreck. You blame that on the Holy Spirit? Or did you just get it wrong? Or were you trusting and being guided by the wrong thing? You shouldn't have been being guided by that at all. Robert, can I think of a scripture that would... uh, Well, logic is one of them. Can I think of a scripture that precludes those things as being recognized from God? There is no scripture anywhere in the New Testament or the Old Testament that tells me that I am to be led that way. So what, what scripture do you point to that says we should just run off on a hinge at the slightest impression or nudge that we get or a still small voice in my head or the Spirit of God speaking to me. There's nothing in Scripture that... the and this You could say, well, this is an argument from silence. It is an argument from silence. Some arguments from silence are valid arguments. right? Is there any Scripture that says that it precludes me from raising the dead? Well, no, there's no passage of Scripture that says you shall not go out and raise the dead. But I have no example and no instruction anywhere in the New Testament on how to do this or why to do this. And I have positive examples that this is not something that I should expect to have the power to do. Same thing with hearing the voice of God. Is there any verse that says, Thou shalt not ever hear God speak? No, there's no verse that says that. But I have no pattern in Scripture by which to follow or to to know if God is speaking or to test if this is God speaking. There's nothing that tells me that this is what I should expect or that this is how I should be led. In fact, the, the example is that I should be led by Scripture and wisdom, and I should make wise choices, and I should walk with God in truth, and trust that God is 
providentially directing my steps in a way that honors him as I make decisions. Am I going to make some horrible decisions? I am. And they might be serious decisions. I might decide to marry a horrible woman, or I might decide to, to take a horrible job. There might be things that I, that I decide to do that have lasting negative impact. But I can't blame those on the Spirit of God. I have to blame those things on myself. And the only thing I can try and do is to be guided by Scripture and to make decisions one way or the other and to not uh, trust that my experiences and my impressions have any validity whatsoever. Uh, Justin, I think, had a passage or something you want to share? Oh, that, yeah, that's a good one, yeah. Hebrews 1, uh, 2, 3, and 4. Uh, God in, in past times in various ways spoke through the apostles and the prophets, but in these latter days He has spoken to us in His Son. That precludes, I think that that seals it off. The greatest revelation that God could give is in the person of Jesus Christ. Every revelation up to that was anticipating this great revelation. That great revelation has been given. What else is necessary? Nothing else is necessary. Ron, do you have a question or objection? What's that? He changed his mind. Okay. Jenny? Yeah, back to the canon. Um, so the question is, were these things written by people with the intention of deceiving, or were they written that did Satan reveal this to them? The Leoites? They glom on to Jenny's blog and Thomas's gospel. <laughs> some of them we do know when they were written and why they were written. Some of the some of those pseudepigrapha were written by like the Essenes. They were a little sect that gathered out in the desert. Um, and and these little Gnostic, remember Gnosticism started in the early church. Uh, Colossians was written to refute Gnosticism. First John uh, was written to refute Gnosticism. Um, you, you see you see sort of glimmers of these Gnostic tendencies within people that were starting to kind of that Gnosticism was starting to take root. And so even the New Testament documents mention this Gnosticism. But then you go forward in time 200 years and you have full blown Gnosticism. So you have these. These mystics who live out in the desert like the Essenes and these other groups, they live out in the desert and they had their little communes. Well, if you're a Gnostic, books like Colossians and 1 John and 2 John and the true Gospels do not lend themselves well to your public worship service. Because people, if you regarded Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as Scripture, and you said to your people, this is what we're going to study, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are not Gnostic Gospels. So you would have a hard time holding together a following out in the desert if you embraced books like Colossians where every Gnostic thing you believe is, is utterly refuted. So a lot of these Gospels were written by the leaders of these sects and people within these little groups, these little commune cultic groups, to lend credibility to their movement. as And they were treated as Scripture and treated as the foundation for their Gnostic beliefs. So some Gospels, like Thomas and uh, some what we call the Gnostic Gospels. Thomas is the one that comes at the top of my head all the time because that's the one that gets the most press, unfortunately. But uh, some Gospels like that were written for the sake of holding together these cultic groups and giving, uh, quote-unquote, scriptural authority to their beliefs. So they could reject Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and say, well, this is what the Spirit is saying to us now. This is fresh revelation. Here's the Jesus of our group. So, good question. Yeah, that's exactly the problem with fresh revelation. I, I used to have a pastor friend of mine um, who used to say that, that was always into mentioning the, the the fresh stuff that the Spirit of God was saying. You know, God's got to be giving us fresh revelation all the time. So he was into the still small voice and 
hearing God. And and I used to say to him, what you, you refer to this as fresh. What does that say about this? What is your view? of this? If that's fresh, then what is this? Stale? Old? Out of date? I don't believe that. Um, I, I believe that the Spirit of God works and speaks through His Word in every contemporary setting just as freshly as when these books were originally penned because these books are living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So you'll often hear me say or preach, and I plan on saying it today during the sermon, when the Word of God is rightly preached, the voice of God is truly heard. Because when Scripture is explained, we hear God speak. That's how we hear God speak. In His Word, which cannot err and is and cannot change, it is immutable, and when that Word is opened up in front of God's people, and we all look at it, and we are studying it, and it is rightly explained so that we understand the intention of the author in its context, we are hearing God speak His Word. I'll use the term freshly to us. It's not fresh in the sense that it is new. It is fresh in the sense that it is old truths directly applied and heard in our context as we hear the voice of God revealed in the pages of Scripture. And when a pastor or preacher takes the Word of God and says something new from it that nobody's ever heard before, that's not God speaking. Or when he or when he gives his own thoughts and simply quotes a few verses to show that his thoughts are valid, that's not Scripture speaking. That's not God speaking. That's not the Word of God being rightly preached. When you open it up and you explain it so that people see its meaning, then you're hearing the Word of God rightly taught. And when that happens, you are hearing the voice of God. He doesn't need to give fresh revelation apart from Scripture when the Word of God is rightly explained. Uh, yeah, Jan. Yeah, people will quote... Uh, one verse, her point was people will quote one verse in order to argue something that Jesus said something when the context doesn't doesn't lend itself to that interpretation. That's right. Now, Greg Kokel of Stand to Reason Ministries, he has a helpful little saying. He says, never read a Bible verse. And what he means by that is never read a Bible verse. You always read a paragraph above and a paragraph below. You never read a Bible verse. Because it's easy when you read a Bible verse to get confused and to not catch the meaning of the text. You always read before and read after. Any other questions? Uh, that leads into what well, Land has been waiting 45 minutes to get to this. <clears throat> we had a long, we went a long way around Carter's barn to get to you, but go ahead. Two verses. <laughs> okay, good question. That's, uh, I wish you would have asked that a little earlier. <clears throat> but let me, uh, let me repeat the question. Uh, Isaiah 50, uh, 65 verse 17 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Then you read down to verse 20. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. So how is it? He's recognizing, obviously, that this is describing two different periods of time. It can't be describing life on the new heavens and the new earth because there's no death at all of infants or 100-year-old men on the new heavens and the new earth. So... How do we how do we know when in Scripture one thing is describing one period of time and another thing is describing another period of time? Hermeneutically, and I'll give you a few quick principles, we always have to remember that when we read Old Testament prophecy, Old Testament prophecy is difficult for the reason that Old Testament prophets were looking forward to in the future, but they didn't always necessarily see the order of events or necessarily see the distinction of or time periods between events. So they would be looking at something, and, and Isaiah seems to be describing everything after Revelation 20, verse 1, of a millennial kingdom when the curse is lifted and people live past 100 as a matter of course. 
and nobody dies as an infant. And he seems to be describing the new heavens and new earth when there is no death. So we always remember that as we're reading Old Testament prophets, we, we've got to be thinking through these issues and not just say, oh, well, there must be death in heaven then. We can't do that. Newer revelation, and I don't mean the book of Revelation, but in this case I do mean the book of Revelation. Newer revelation shines light on older revelation. So we can look at the revelation of Revelation and then compare that and shine that light onto the revelation of Isaiah and say, from the book of Revelation we find out, he gives us clarity as to what Isaiah is describing. So one of the principles that you go to, to answer Lanny's question, one of the principles you go to is that newer revelation always explains older revelation. Um, so Isaiah offers us the information that we need in order to make, sorry, Revelation offers us the information that we need in order to make sense out of what Isaiah says in chapter 65. So well, how do I know that? Whether When I'm reading something, if something applies to a, this time period or the future or what the order of events is, you just have to get in and study and you, you've got to know the, the broad parameters of systematic theology and eschatology and say, okay, well, this can only be describing this. And and when I, in fact, I dealt with this with the book of Micah. Uh, remember for the Christmas Eve service, there's there's these phrases that are one right after another. One seems to be describing the birth of Jesus, and the next phrase seems to be describing the invasion of that day. And the, the verse right before that is describing an invasion that is yet future to us still. So there's all of these elements of what's future to Micah that's all kind of woven into that passage. And you have to just... You have to just take the phrases or the verses or the passages themselves and examine them in their context and ask the question, does this fit with what I know from the rest of Scripture? And you just sometimes you just have to deduce. That's part of the hard work of studying Scripture. That help? That help anybody else? Okay. No. Oh, okay, good, good. We got two people help today. That's a, we'll call that an accomplishment. <clears throat> All right, our time is up. Let's pray. Father, the things that we have discussed and the things that we have fellowshiped around here, many of them are very weighty for us and they're difficult sometimes to understand how to handle these things and to think through these things. We're just grateful that you give us your spirit to be our teacher and our guide. And we pray that uh, all that we have discussed here might serve to edify and equip your people for the work of ministry. May you continue to be glorified uh, in our lives and through our service to you. And we thank you for giving us clarity in your word and giving us all things that we need for life and, and godliness. Your word is sufficient. It is true, inerrant, and it is perfect and pure, and and we thank you for it. And we know that we are clouded in our understanding of it sometimes, but we know that you continue to sanctify us, and we thank you for the work of the Spirit, which teaches us those things which are difficult to understand. So we entrust ourselves to you, and thank you for your grace. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.